Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. There was a lot going on after Jesus' resurrection on that first Easter Sunday morning. And uh, later in the day, there were still things that were happening. Uh, One thing that was happening uh, was that there were two people who were traveling, walking from uh, Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And they were talking about Jesus as they walked. They apparently knew him or knew of him. Um certainly would have been able to recognize him under normal circumstances. But on the way, uh, this person comes up, this man comes up, and begins to walk with them. And this was Jesus himself. And uh, Jesus probably walked along with them for a couple of hours. They were talking about him. Jesus himself was describing different uh, things about uh, how prophecy had talked about who uh, the Messiah would be. And yet these two people did not recognize that this person who was walking with them and teaching them along the way was Jesus himself. So why didn't they recognize him? Is it possible that part of the reason that they did not recognize him is because of their disbelief? They just couldn't believe that Jesus was alive. Was that part of the problem that Mary Magdalene had at the tomb that morning when she didn't recognize Jesus at first and thought he was the gardener? We also seem to find a lot of disbelief in the upper room among the disciples at one point. So why was it that all of these followers of Jesus, these people who knew Jesus, had such a hard time believing that he was risen? That's what we're going to talk about during this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So today I wanted, before we got launching and go back to our road to Emmaus, sometimes as I um, read through my daily devotionals and things, I run across certain things and I think, I didn't really get that before. And uh, boom, you know, uh, but maybe you guys would enjoy uh, learning what I've learned. Maybe you already knew it. Maybe I'm the only one who is sitting here in ignorance, but so I was reading through my devotional this past week. So turn in, I'm going to share with you what I learned and see if you think it's cool like I thought it was cool. So I had never really known this before. So if you turn to Ephesians, if you have your Bible, Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Ephesians is after Galatians and before Philippians. 
So Ephesians chapter 6, and you'll see there at about verse 10, my Bible has the armor of God. So you've heard, we've heard, we're all familiar, right, with the whole armor of God. We've all heard this a million times. So just to refresh your memory, go to verse 13, and this is Paul writing. And Paul says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, uh, and after you have done everything to stand, verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So I thought, you know, that Paul, he is just a genius for coming up with this, this idea of the whole armor of God and things like the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. What an amazing inspiration this is that he put this in words that we could see and understand and have this analogy uh, to, to have in our minds and have this image. Well, go back to Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah 59, which is before 60 and after 58. (laughs) (laughs) If you go to Isaiah 59, verse... Let's go to verse 16, just to set the stage. So this is Isaiah. He's prophesying about the Messiah. And he says, verse 16, he saw that there was no one. Uh, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Or actually, let's go back to 15. Let's go back to verse 15, 59, 15. Because I think this, when I read 15, I'm like, oh my gosh, this could be true for today. So 59, 15, Isaiah says, truth is nowhere to be found. <laughs> And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Yeah. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Then verse 17, he put on what? Righteousness as was what? A breastplate and a what? Helmet of salvation on his head. This is where Paul got the inspiration from, for the whole armor of God. Paul knew Isaiah. Paul was well-educated. He was a student of Gamaliel. He knew the Old Testament back and forth, backwards and forwards. And he knew Isaiah was talking about this righteousness with his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. This is going to be applicable to the Messiah. So then if it should be something that we also then have. And then he expounded on it for the rest of the armor. But basically, the seed and inspiration had to have been planted by what Isaiah said and his knowledge of it, that because when you get to what Paul is writing, he has the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. He takes the same image and just expands on it. And I thought, that is so cool. I never really, I never knew that Paul's inspiration for the whole armor of God was from Isaiah. 
Incredible. I love that. So now, since you're in Isaiah, stay there and uh, look over in um, uh, chapter 60. 60 comes after 59. And let's go to... Um, Let's go to chapter to uh, verse 18, 60 verse 18 in Isaiah. And this is where Isaiah is talking about the new kingdom that will be established under Messiah. He says, no longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And then verse 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. So now if we turn over. So he's saying, in this new kingdom, the under Messiah, the eternal kingdom, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, because the Lord will be your everlasting light, and God will be your glory. The sun will never set again, the moon will be no more, because the Lord is your everlasting So go to Revelation. Does that sound familiar to you? So go to Revelation, and we'll look at uh, chapter 21. Chapter 21. And we'll go to... Uh, Let's start with verse 22. So Revelation 21, 22. And this is John writing, okay? That was Isaiah. This is John. Uh, thousands of years, a thousand years later. So verse 22. And John is, is writing here about the vision that God gave him about the eternal kingdom that will that Christ will establish here on earth. So I did not see, and this is, he's talking about the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Exactly what Isaiah said was going to happen. And John says, yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen because Isaiah had it as a prophecy that the Lord had given him. And John got it as a vision, and they match up, and they're the same. And the reason I bring all of this up is because, and especially the Revelation, uh, this this one with Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, is because the two on the road to Emmaus learned that Jesus was the Messiah by by being taught out of what? The Old Testament, right? So the Old Testament and the New Testament they go hand in hand, glove in glove, and one supports the other. And it's so great that it's consistent all the way through. And that to really, I mean, when I learn something like we just talked about here, I get so excited about it because to me, it just is like, oh my gosh, I never knew that before. And it's just exactly what said was going to happen, is what happened, is what's going to happen, and it all matches and it's all the same. You know, John could have been given a totally different vision, but he wasn't. He's given the exact same vision that Isaiah talked about. And and Paul could have written anything they wanted to write, but he's talking about the, the soul armor of God. He, base, he bases that on the foundation 
that came from Isaiah and the Old Testament. So our Christian walk and the New Testament that we live by is based on the foundation of the Old Testament, and that's exactly what we see happening on the road to Emmaus. So let's turn to the road to Emmaus now, which is in Luke, and let's see what uh, is happening there today. So uh, last week we read through the whole thing, and uh, we got to the first few verses. So let me go ahead and read um, read it, and then we'll come back. And I'll read to where we got to last week, and then we'll go from there. It is Luke chapter 24, comes after 23, it's the 425. I know, I, I, I go on too, too much, don't I? Yeah. Jan's the first one to say yes. Okay, so Luke 24, uh, 13. Now that same day, the day of the resurrection, two of them, or two of the followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I'm thinking they were probably from Emmaus, and they were going back home. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Uh, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Yes, go ahead. A few weeks ago, about all the various reasons why Mary didn't recognize Right. On this occasion, you're right. Yeah, on this occasion, you're right. And one of the. He's almost always right. You're right before and you're right again. Uh. We kind of talked about it last week, Stan, and I think one of the one of the conclusions that I'd like uh, here is one of the reasons is because if he had revealed himself right then and there as Jesus, it's all over. They they rejoice, they celebrate, they go back to Jerusalem, and that's the end of the story. Because you know what happened when after Mary saw Jesus, she immediately ran back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples. When the women the other women from the tomb saw Jesus. They went right back to Jerusalem and told the disciples. But Jesus doesn't want these two to run right back to Jerusalem and tell the disciples yet. Because why? Because he wants to teach them something. There's a specific reason why he veils his their knowledge of who he is at this point. Because he wants to spend, and we said last week, it takes about two and a half to three hours to walk seven miles. And maybe even longer with them taking more casual pace, talking to one another, discussing these things. So he went to spend that time teaching them about himself from the Old Testament. And he can't do that if they know who he is right off the bat. So he veils who he is to them so he can spend his time with them, teaching them from the Old Testament who he was and why those things had to happen. Why? Because so they could go back and teach others. So the students become the teachers. And then they go back and they tell their story to the other disciples. And they probably, I'm, I'm assuming, that they went through the same things that Jesus went, that went through with them. They went through with the other disciples. Hey, you know, Jesus taught us these things. And here's what he said about himself from the Old Testament. So then they, they, as they the students, become, became the teachers. And then what they taught the disciples, the disciples used later on. And we're going to go into that in a minute. I, I'm going to spend a few minutes on that more more in depth, but I think that's the that's the reason why here he veiled who he was so he could spend this time teaching 
teaching them. So, okay, so he, uh, so he, he, as, as they talked and discussed these things, verse fifteen, uh, with each other, Jesus Himself came out to them and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing Him. Verse seventeen, He asked them, "What are you discussing together as you walk along?" They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And I like, I think the word there is interesting because this is Cleopas saying about Jerusalem, the things that have happened there. So to me, that leads me to think they weren't so in Jerusalem at this time. They'd already gone on the road to Emmaus a little ways. Because he's not saying what had happened here. He was not saying what happened here. So what happened there? And also probably leads me also to believe he wasn't from Jerusalem because, you know, usually if it's your own hometown, you'd say here, but it's there. So I think this is the word there says to me that Cleopas and the other follower were not from Jerusalem. They were probably from Emmaus. And at this point, they've already walked a certain amount of distance because they're talking about a place that they are not a place that's here. So, okay. But but he says, don't you know, uh, do you not know what has been happening here? Uh, do you not know the, do you not know things have been ha- that have been happening there in these days? And he's he's kind of like, Right. Where have you been? What rock have you been living under? It's like, how can you not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? Everybody knows. How can you not know? And uh, to me, what this leads me to think about is that what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus was well known to the public at large of his day. He wasn't only well known to his followers. He wasn't only well-known to the religious leaders. He wasn't only just well-known to the Romans. He was well-known to everyone in that area, everywhere. In other words, during the three years of all the things he did with the miracles and the preaching and the teaching and all the other things that he did, whether you believed in him or not, whether you were an opponent of his or not, whether you were in the military, Roman-looking on or not, he was a public figure. Jesus was a public figure who was well-known by everyone in that area at the time. So it wasn't just that he was well-known only by his followers or the religious leaders or the, or the, or the Romans. It'd be like, it'd be like today, uh, I mean, this isn't really a, a proper analogy, but it's, it's probably about as close as I can come to what we're experiencing here today in Cincinnati. And that's like, if I said to you, you know that Joe Burrow, and you say, who? I mean, I don't think you have to be a Bengals fan to know that Joe Burrow is the quarterback of the Bengals. I don't think you have to be a sports fan. Uh, except Bev. Bev, you may not. Did you not know who Joe Burrow was? Okay. So, but but if you said Joe Burrow and someone said, who is that? You might say, how can you not know who Joe Burrow is if you live in Cincinnati? <laughs> or... Uh, J. Vernon McGee had, you know, he, he wrote, you know, a couple of decades ago, but J. Vernon McGee said it would be like if you said to someone, yeah, you know, that, that, that landing on the moon with Neil Armstrong and the man on the moon, and someone would say to you, we, someone went to the moon? <laughs> I didn't, well, I didn't, he's like, what, what you, how can you not know? 
Although in today's world, they do those those interviews on the street and they ask people. Like so I was like, so I remember was like, when was the year when when was the war of eighteen twelve? They said nineteen thirty-two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Jan and I watch Jeopardy all the time, and there'll be like there'll be an answer, you know, that is like maybe goes back to the sixties or maybe a movie or something. And no, none of the three people will know it. We'll go, they're too young. <laughs> they're too young to know that one. <laughs> but think about it. I mean, he, rose, he, he brought Lazarus back from the dead. He had the triumphal entry. He had the trial before Pilate that was open and public. The crucifixion itself, all of this stuff was publicly done. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it was all the feeding of the fight. It was all public. It was everyone knew. And so you can imagine why they were so taken aback when Jesus came back and said, what things? <laughs> like, what? How can you not know? Yeah, please, Dennis. I was thinking, uh, this is still after celebration. Yeah, just after. Yeah, during. Yeah. It's not after. Yeah. During. Yeah. Uh, the Passover just started. Yeah. Few days. So some of that conversation had to have been about Passover and the Lamb. Yeah. And. Uh, so I think that's pretty significant. You would think so, for sure. Yeah. You know, what, what passages did he use to teach them? And uh, I think that, as I think Ruth or someone said last week, to have been on that road with them to hear that teaching would have been so incredibly amazing. So so uh, he says in verse 19, what things? And they and, and clear up with us, what about Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Uh, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be uh, sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So one thing I want to point out there is look at, look at all the past tense that's happening here. He says... He was a prophet that was powerful in word of thee. We, we had hoped that he was the one. So they come here, these two followers of Jesus, walking along the road to Emmaus, talking about all the things that happened, but one of the things that they were not convinced of was that Jesus was actually risen and was alive, which in a minute here we'll find out, which is really quite amazing because they already had heard what the women had to say. They had heard what Peter and John had to say, and yet they're still not convinced that Jesus was risen, alive, and resurrected. And, the, and as a matter of fact, if you read this by using the past tense, they're still convinced that he's not alive, that he's still dead at this point. Well, because we'll go, it's on down here. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there in a minute. So, uh, so. Do they even have the right view of Jesus? At this point, they, they're calling him prophet in word and deed. They're not calling him the Messiah. Right. So And the one that was going to redeem Israel. So they are they thinking politically? Yes. Yeah. Clearly they are. Yeah, absolutely. Someone else have something to say? No, I just said that. Right. So they use the past tense. He's still dead. They're calling him a prophet, not the Messiah. So they're off base there. That he was going to redeem Israel which is interesting because it's really um, an oxymoron in a way, isn't it? We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. 
meaning that they had hoped that he was going to kick out the Romans, defeat them, and establish his kingdom on earth for the Jewish people only. So if you weren't a Jewish believer at that time, you were not going to be part of that kingdom. But that's what they expected him to do. And as a matter of fact, the word hope there, where he says we had hoped that he was the one who was going to do these things, the word hope there is my favorite hope word for hope in the Bible, Elpis, Elvis. And that hope means that it was an expectation, that not just a wishful thinking that he was going to do these things, but an expectation that he was definitely, that he wasn't going to do these. They expected it. So you can almost read that to say uh, we had hope, not this, that, that we had hoped that he would be the one, but that we expected him to be the one. So it says, uh, where is it? Um, he was a prophet, powerful word indeed, before God and all people, the chief priests and our rulers, had, about verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But really, you can also say that, but we had expected that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So the, 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 the oxymoron is that they expected him to do this, to redeem Israel, and they feel that he's he failed in that at this point. But in reality, not only has Jesus redeemed Israel, but he's redeemed the whole world. He's done more. He's actually accomplished more than they hoped he would, because he not only redeemed Israel, but he redeemed all people of all time if you just have faith in him. And it's a spiritual redemption at this point. So the oxymoron is they kind of, as a lot of us do, in our lives, put a limitation on what Jesus was going to do, thinking it was a big thing. I mean, to them at that time, redeeming Israel was a big thing. But it was too small. The thinking was too small. The thinking needed to be bigger. That Jesus did not only redeem Israel, but redeemed the whole world, Gentiles, everyone. If they believe in him, they're redeemed. So uh, the, the oxymoron is they expected something big, but what they expected, and what we do in our own lives is we ask Jesus to, to do certain things for us, God to do certain things for us, or we expect him to do certain things or hope he'll do certain things, but sometimes we make it too small. God is bigger and has bigger purposes in mind for us, and sometimes we have a hard time waiting to see what that bigger purpose is. <laughs> we get a little impatient about it. So. Are there two different words for redeem? The one that means redeemed politically. No, or redeemed. it's the same. It's just how you interpret how what. It's the same word redemption. It's just how you apply it. Is all the, the, the changes. So I would love to know if these guys actually believed after you know Paul and everybody started. You know after you know what I mean. You think they came to believe? I think they believed right that same day. I think they believed that same day. We're, we're just not we're just not quite there yet. So, okay. So let's let's keep going. And so, I like that Cheryl's Bible study could have been a man and a woman. Yeah. I don't really think it might have. Well. Yeah. No, no, no. But but. Oh, it's not a book note in your Bible. It was your book. Something I picked up from. They mentioned one person's name, but it could have been his wife. It could have been. Yeah, well, here's what I think about that. I, I like, actually, I like that interpretation. And the reason I like it is because if Jesus was teaching them so they could teach others, I like the idea that there was a man and a woman. Because the man can go teach men, and the women can go teach women, right? 
So I love the idea. Maybe this is a clear person is white. Maybe the reason we don't have the other person's name is because she is a woman, right? So uh, I love the idea that maybe this is Cleopas and his wife. We don't know. But I love the poetry of the idea that if Jesus is teaching them, so they as students become teachers, that there's a man to teach men and a woman to, te- a woman to teach women. As a matter of fact, you see that, and I keep, he, he keep bringing it up, but I think so, so many things, the chosen is smart. In the chosen, you see that in that, in that show. Because you, you have Mary Magdalene, who is teaching the other women about Jesus and about Old Testament scriptures and so forth and so on. While the men are out doing their thing, the women are learning from other women. So I love that idea that um, it could have been a man and a woman. I, I don't think we know, but I, I kind of I like the, the idea of it. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I just walked all the way seven miles from Jerusalem and then returned and did 14 miles. I know, in one day. I know, in one day. I was going to tell you, they could do this in an hour and 45 minutes. Well, he's, he's, they're not that overweight like we are. Their joints are good. They walk they're used to it. 15 minute pace. They're used to it. Okay, so here's what I think. I think it took them, I, I think it took three hours to get there. And an hour and a half to get back. An hour and a half to get back. Because on the way there, they're depressed. They're upset. You know, when you're depressed and upset, your pace is slower. They were discussing with each other. And then Jesus was teaching them. That's a slow pace. I said, it wasn't, on the way there, it was not a power walk. But on the way back, it was an empowered walk. Because they were empowered by what had happened. And they were, they were anxious to get back and tell everyone. So that was a sprint. That was a, they went back quickly. Um, same day, I think. Yep. Because it says that he right at, at right it says uh, right after dinner it says verse thirty three it says verse thirty two they asked each other we're not our hearts burning within us and they're having dinner as we broke the bread it says verse thirty they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem meaning at once meaning that same night that same oh I see no I, I have it reversed okay never yeah mind. yeah. Um, it, this reminds me, though, of something. Uh, when uh, I was at Walnut Hills, me and a friend of mine used to do a special presentation every year for the National Day of Prayer. And uh, one of the times I interviewed four men who had, uh, actually three men, who had served during World War II. And uh, during one of the interviews, uh, Fred Burke was his name. Uh, Fred was talking about, you know, he was just a farm boy from Ohio. He'd never been, never been anywhere. And he signed up, you know, war broke out. He signed up. Next thing you know, he and, a, you know, as many people as they could pack in a troop ship, they were on a ship on the way to Europe. And he said on the way there, he was, along with a lot of other guys, so seasick. From the minute they left port to the minute they got there, they were sick. Oh, it took three days, four days, whatever it took, but they were they were sick, and it was a terrible crossing, and they were so ill the whole time. He gets over there, he serves his time, the war is over, he's coming home, reverse it now. He's on his way home on a troop ship, same number of people all around him. He goes back, he goes, not one person got sick on the way home. Because why? Because on the way over, you know, on the way back, it's over, you're, you're excited, and the trip back was a lot easier for these guys than the trip over. 
And I think the same thing what you see here. It's like the same kind of dynamic. They're on the way. It's depressing and hard, and they're slow. But on the way back, oh boy, they got a whole different look at uh, a look at what's going on there, don't they? So that's exciting. Okay, so uh, this is the one that says, um, where are we? Verse twenty-two. In addition, and this is where you get into this. Some of our women amazed us that they went to they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So, first of all, the word amaze there is the word we've run into before when we talked about the women at the tomb. And the idea there in the Greek, literally the Greek means to be placed out of position. It means to be beside oneself. It can be translated as astonished. It means to be out of your mind with what you have heard or seen or what you've discovered. It, you know, to be to be put out of place, to be beside yourself with astonishment. That's how amazed they were about what the women had said. And uh, what did the women say? We have seen angels. And what did the angels say? He's risen. <laughs> He's alive. And the idea here is that they've heard something pretty amazing. He admits it's amazing, miraculous, but that really hasn't changed their mind. And think about this. The women had not only seen angels, had they? If you go back to uh, Matthew... Matthew 28, for just a sec. Matthew 28, and we read Matthew's account of what happened with the women. It says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Verse 8 of Matthew uh, was this Matthew 27, uh, 28 rather. Uh, it says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Jesus met them. Uh, greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go to Mount Brothers to, to tell them to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So, Surely these women had also told them that they had seen Jesus, right? And yet, when these two tell Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, what had happened, they only mentioned that the women had told them about the angel. So why didn't they tell them about the women telling them they had also seen Jesus? Because surely they did. Surely they didn't come back to the disciples and just say, oh yeah, we saw angels who said he was alive, and... They only had a part of the story. It could have been different women in different groups. You know, like they could have. It's interesting that they said, but him they didn't see. You could imply from that that others saw him. Well, him, the him they didn't see, there they're talking about Peter and John didn't see him. They're not talking about the women. They say, they say, then some of our companions, that would be Peter and John, because these are, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that some of our companions went to the tomb. The only companions we know for sure from Scripture that went to the tomb other than the women are Peter and John. Yeah. 
So, and they did not, we know that Peter and John did not see him and did not see angels. They just saw the tomb, but they came back. They could have, Peter and John could have told them about what they saw. We know from our study of what happened in the morning that Peter went away still unconvinced, but John went away believing just seeing the burial cloth. So, uh, so yeah, so why wouldn't they have told, why wouldn't these two? I think they heard, I think they heard the women tell them that they saw Jesus and the angels. But when they tell Jesus, they leave out the Jesus part. They just tell about the angels. And I wonder what would be their motivation for doing that? Why would they, why would they not say, oh yeah, they also saw, they, they say, they also saw Jesus. But, I think you're getting right to it, Stan. I think that, okay, uh, they're talking to a stranger here, and uh, saying that they talk to angels is like, you know, pushing the bounds of believability. But then if you add, oh, we also saw the dead man alive too, uh, that like is a bridge too far that they, because, you know, they they don't know this guy and they don't want these people, when they heard the women say that they saw Jesus, the disciples and the followers who were back in Jerusalem thought what? You're that crazy talk. You women are out of your minds. And they didn't believe him. So I think what they were, I think the reason they left us is just, well, this guy we're walking with might believe that those women saw angels, but there's no way in the world he's going to believe that they saw Jesus. Cause that's, and he, if we say it, he's going to think we're, we're weird too. We're crazy too. We don't want to, we don't want, we're, we're crazy enough just telling if they saw angels. We don't want them to think we're so crazy that, that we also, someone also saw Jesus. I don't know. I'm speculating. You can take it or leave it. But I think there was a re- they they had to have heard that Jesus was risen, and they didn't tell Jesus on the road to Emmaus. There must have been a reason for it, and I'm thinking the reason is like Stan said, they already were pushing the bounds of believability, and they didn't want to take that next step. Uh, that next step. So that's kind of what what I'm thinking though. But um, so they they go on, and so they they say these things about you know him they did not see. Um, and, the, and the, our companion. So, so think about this for just a minute. Think about this for just a minute. So, they've had the women come back and say, "We've seen angels and we've seen Jesus." They've had Mary Magdalene come back and say, "By this point, they've had Mary Magdalene come back and say, I have seen Jesus and I also saw angels." They also now have some somehow. Although at the end of uh, the, the passage we studied, Peter and John went home and said. But somehow their stories also got back to the people in Jerusalem, uh, the, what they saw at the at the tomb as well. So they have the women saw Jesus and angels. Mary Magdalene saw Jesus and angels. Peter and John went to the tomb and it was empty. They saw the burial cloths. And in spite of all of this, these guys and probably most of the followers at this time still in Jerusalem still did not believe it. They still did not believe it. Which seems incredible, doesn't it? Not really. You gotta remember that nobody ever comes back alive. Right. <laughs> you know, whatever you're telling me, uh, I, I, that sounds good, but people don't come back alive. 
<laughs> I mean, can we really blame Thomas for saying, I ain't going to believe it until I see it. I believe it when I see it. Jan and I say that all the time. We say that about a lot of people are supposed to come to our house and work on it. Well, we'll believe it when we see it. <laughs> yeah, but, but that was Jesus doing it. You know, this was just, you know. And My friend's kids tell her, if you don't have a picture, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, so we saw an albino deer. She told her kids that, and we're like, if you don't have a picture, So we did. We finally got a picture of the albino deer. <laughs> but, but, but that is human nature, isn't it? It is human nature. And that's why so many people today are still struggling with believing in Christ, believing in Jesus as a Savior, because you have to step out in faith. You have to believe things you can't see, believe things that, you know, on faith that it happened, and it is happening, and it is. And so many people today are in the same mindset of even these disciples is, it's too much. Until I, I need some proof. That's what the, even the religious leaders are saying was, show us some proof. You know, it's just, if, if what has already happened isn't proof enough, then I can't help you beyond that, you know. So, yeah, so I don't know, but that's what they were dealing with. So, but I would just, I, I would hope that if I had people coming back to me and saying, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, angels, Jesus, that I'd say, yeah, I believe it. I do believe it. I mean, that's where John got to, but Peter was still struggling. Okay, so. Uh, so then we go on to verse 25. So now Jesus, he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, this is the amazing part, isn't it? He says, Jesus says, first of all, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying to them, you should have known better. You should have known better. Why were you, you shouldn't have been so foolish. You should have, you should have known the scriptures better. You should have known that this was what was going to take place. Uh, Pascal, you ever heard of Pascal? Pascal said, human knowledge, human knowledge must be understood to be believed, but divine knowledge must be believed to be understood. Yeah. Gets back to that faith thing, right? That faith thing. So he goes and he says, you can prove that Jesus was the Messiah by using only Old Testament passages. You can do that. And how Jesus did it, we don't know. We don't know all the things he, did, he said and, and did. But the good news is that, as I said at the beginning of the class today, there's nothing in the Old Testament that contradicts the New Testament or vice versa. They, one is the foundation for the other. One builds on the other. They're consistent. And, um, and you can prove the one from the other. Uh, David Limbaugh, I've been quoting him lately because I'm reading his, his book. But here's what he says in his book. He says, I am particularly moved by passages that fully demonstrate the Christ-centered nature of the Old Testament, the unity of Scripture, and the theme of God's salvation history coursing through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Many Christians overlook the Christ-centered nature of the Old Testament and thereby miss the essential part, an, an essential part of God's salvation history that enriches our understanding. 
A person recently asked me, what does the Old Testament have to do with Christianity? What does the Old Testament have to do with Christianity? Well, everything. That's Fox. <laughs> so my sister uh, lives in Atlanta, and there's a big mega church down there with a pretty famous uh, pastor. And um, that pastor refuses to teach from or preach from the Old Testament. He only teaches and preaches from the New Testament. And I'm like, gosh, you're just really, if you're not giving your people both, you're really not giving your people a full diet. You know, it's like a full balanced diet. You know, you can't just live on ice cream and candy, unfortunately. You also have to eat some broccoli every now and then. So, you know, it's the same thing. If you're only going to have a diet of New Testament stuff, then you're not going to have a well-balanced scriptural basis and foundation for your belief. You need to get, you need to get some, that's why I love, what are we studying right now? In our church, we're in Joshua, right? We're in the Old Testament. Wonderful. Thank goodness that, you know, at this church, uh, under David's leadership and others, that we, we take very, uh, we, we take very seriously the importance of the Old Testament here and learning from that because that's, that's the basis of what we have. So that's what Jesus did. And, and he taught them these things so that they could go back and teach others. So let's just go on a little bit more here. It says, verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, 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 strongly. And that the idea of strongly there is like, it's, it's almost the word strongly there, it, 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 it doesn't apply to this, but in some applications, it means even to physically constrain someone. So here it says they strongly urge, what do I say, they strongly, um, they urged him strongly. In some translations, you might have that they constrained him, because uh, the idea is almost as though they physically tried to hold him and not let him go. They didn't, but it's almost to that extent. You know, they were, please, 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 come and stay with us and, and don't go any further. So uh, they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So here they are. They're sitting at the table. Uh, they, they constrained Jesus to go in with them. And, and you know, why did, they, why did they constrain Jesus to go in with them? They didn't know it was Jesus. But what they did know is that they liked this guy. They liked what he had to say. They liked what they were hearing. And they wanted to hear more, right? They wanted to hear more. And so he goes in with them, and they go to dinner. And he's sitting there, and he breaks the bread, and he gives it to them. And he gives thanks, and he breaks the bread and gives it to them. And then they recognized who he was, right? So why was that? What made it possible for them to recognize? What was it about the breaking of the bread that allowed them to recognize him? Previously, they had been prevented. So right. the obvious answer is that that veil was lifted for them at that time. But I think you're going to have the reference to something they had seen or heard about before the breaking of the yeah, I think, you know, as I think you're right. I think both of those things are, are true. I think there's a reason that Jesus 
chose this time to reveal himself to them. Um, just as, remember, Mary, when she didn't recognize him until what? He said her name, Mary. And when he said her name, it was in this something about the way he said her name was so familiar and so recognizable. This had to be Jesus because he's the only one that said my name that way. Uh, and the, just the fact that he knew too. The fact that he knew her name too, right. So, you know, this is obviously what Jesus is doing with you know, giving thanks and giving the bread is reminiscent of, of course, the Last Supper. But I think the Last Supper obviously was just with Jesus and his disciples. I don't think distant followers like this would have been there for that. But they might have been somewhere else where it happened. So let's go and see where that might have been. Let's turn to Matthew real quick. Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 14, 14. Matthew 14, and we'll go um, to verse 13. Do you, what do you have there at the, do you have a heading? Jesus feeds the 5,000, right. So when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have, been, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. He gave thanks and they and they gave and they gave them to the disciples. This is exactly what he did here. He says he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. So it's likely that these followers on the road to Emmaus had been there when Jesus fed the five thousand, and they were there when they saw him take that bread. And, and give thanks to God and look to the heaven and broke it and gave the disciples. And they're seeing him do it here. And they reminded them, oh, yeah, Jesus did that. He's the one that did that. And they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Yes, Jesus made it possible for him, them to recognize him. But I think he chose that moment to bring that remembrance back to them that, you know, it's a miracle, a miracle, and another miracle. So, Dennis? What's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that helps too, doesn't it? <laughs> Dennis? I was reading Ephesians yesterday um, in reference to some other issues. But I think what you said is absolutely right. But I think there's just a half a step more to it than that. Yeah. In reading it, this is what Paul says. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known in other generations, that it has, as it has now been uh, revealed, by the Spirit to God, holy apostles and prophets. It's a mystery that through the gospel, the Gentiles are characters. Anyway, the whole idea was, you can recognize that, say, oh yeah, that reminds me. But when the Spirit says no, it's greater than just a remembrance. This is something that that's why they said, did our hearts not burn with us? Because it was the spirit burning in, in that 
Yeah, I love the idea of that our hearts not burn within us because I experience that all the time. Uh, you know, just like I said when I at the beginning of the class when I when I read that devotional and it, it connected the dots for me between the form of God and Isaiah, I'm like, oh my God, that's you know. Uh, my heart burns within me. I think, I hope you do. You know, and when you learn something new, I mean, especially with something with spiritual matters, with your, your, your relationship with the Lord, you know, I learned from preaching. And when I learn something, my heart burns within me. Uh, I learned something from Bible study. And when I learn something new, my heart burns. It's so exciting. I'm fighting to learn something new. My heart burns within me. Sometimes a, a song will come on. Or the choir will sing a song, or the praise band they'll sing a song, and that will my heart because I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I love the way that says that. And uh, I I pray uh, pretty much every Sunday uh, before class that the Lord will give us in this class spiritual invigoration, spiritual invigoration, that our spiritual adrenaline will get going. I think it's what I mean here by our heart burning within us that spiritual adrenaline gets going and. So we all have the Spirit of God within us as believers. And then when we gather together to worship and serve Him, He is dwelling here among us. And what I ask the Lord to do is give us spiritual invigoration where our spirit within us and the spirit that's here will resonate with each other and will be invigorated spiritually to be more than we could ever otherwise be. Uh, and this is the only time, the only place that this kind of thing can happen where we gather together as believers to worship and serve Him and where He's here and we're here and there should be a spiritual, our heart should burn within us when we're, uh, when we're learning and growing and that kind of thing. So, not a good place to stop. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.